8 that highlights it so well. Now, there are lots of other passages in, in Scripture. First Peter named some of them that so, speak so well to sanctification. But as it plays out in one lump, it would come in Romans chapter 6 uh, through 8. And we went from uh, the indicatives to the imperatives. And, and now we are closing out what Paul has been talking about with the idea of suffering. In which case, in the flow of things, uh, I, I said last week that oftentimes one of our favorite verses as Christians is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God uh, and to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to, his, to the image of His Son and that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called and whom He called... These he also justified, and also whom he justified, these he also glorified. And, and we love those sections of Scripture very much. And we discuss them manifold. But I don't know that we've ever discussed them under the context in which they're set. And that is namely under the area of suffering. So, Nero, doing what he did with Christians in Rome at the time that Paul was writing was horrible. Uh, of course, you know, Paul lost his head under Nero. Peter also. Diocletian took over sometime later and continued the horrific persecution of the church. And it spread all the way up uh, to Constantine in around 325. The church knew nothing but suffering for its first years, first several hundred years of existence. And it was in those first several hundred years that the church knew such great power. It was under suffering. Horrific things that I can't even begin to describe. And then Constantine came. And suddenly the persecution lifted. The church not only was not persecuted anymore. It was shielded. It was made part of the culture. It even found its way into government. Suddenly, to be a bishop was no longer a death sentence by martyrdom. But to become a bishop was a place of uh, high cotton, if you will. You, uh, you now had prestige and prominence and a position. And the church found itself suffering at the hands of success. And my, doesn't history repeat itself? We've discussed suffering in our own context is vastly different from that that Paul is writing to these Roman believers. And he, he cased. He set as though a diamond in a setting of gold these promises of God's sovereignty and election and preserving mercy and all things indeed working out for good in the idea of suffering. And we read those in a context of ease, plenty. The biggest threat I have walking in my house today is we'll maybe being run over by flies that snuck in some way. I watched a documentary 
We're going to go just a little bit long today, so just relax. Um, I watched a documentary over the Holocaust. I'm, 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 I like World War II history, World War I history. Um, and I, and I, I'm just puzzled by this, this question. How, how could an entire nation succumb to the seductive doctrines of demons to persecute a people based upon them being Jewish or Polish? How could a race of people who actually had Martin Luther as one of its figureheads and the Reformation began there, how could they come to the grips of thinking that a master race is an Aryan race? How could the ideas of one man with a very bad mustache who really spent most of his formative younger years painting, trying to make it into a prestigious painting school, pin pin his memoirs down, who became known as Mein Kampf, end in the death of millions of people. And, And spark this thing called Nazism, which still exists today. How could that have happened? And how could people... In the countryside, who once held to Christian orthodoxy, live with themselves knowing every day that 10,000 a day or more were going up the chimney at Auschwitz. There are people still alive that remember that. And I watched this movie about a... a, uh, a Pole who was in the army and of course got captured by the Germans and was one of the first groups of people to be imprisoned at Auschwitz. And it just so happened that he had done a little bit of boxing back in his... Now he was young now, 18, but he, was, he, he, he knew how to box. And the capos, which would be turncoats working with the Germans, and so they got to be the... the Enforcers in the prisons like to play games with the prisoners. And he found himself one day being called upon to stand in front of a, a guy that would knock him in the face and, or have him knock another guy down in the face. And he wouldn't do it. And so this guy came up and tried to punch him. He was fat. He just, he was good at evading because he boxed. As it turns out, that's how he saved, it saved his life. Through Auschwitz and then another camp. But he was beaten, hung up by his arms for hours, fighting on very little food. And then finally the war was over and he went back to college. (laughs) His health had been so deteriorated, though, that he couldn't fight anymore. But he died in his 70s. And he went on ahead and lived, right? But he knew suffering that we just don't know. And, we, and, and many of these themes that we saw developing and happening to cause people to think that this stuff was acceptable in seed form to the, to the German people is happening in this country. 
And I thought the other night, I thought, man, well, Hitler's not alone. Stalin had his own thing going. And what about Mao? Remember General Mao? And Pol Pot? They would take little babies and just literally rip them apart. The Germans would do that. One commentator, or one, uh, uh, when I was reading on their movie review here, one writer wrote in and they said, one question was, is, or were the Germans as really as bad as they were portrayed in, the, in, these, in these films? And one survivor wrote, they were worse. But it all started with an idea. Now they knew suffering. And it started, this suffering was the, was the result of the idea, and in that particular case of Germany, in one guy's head. And then it fleshed out. The Christians knew about this in Rome. Nero was a bizarre guy. Butchery. But they loved Jesus more than they loved their life. And so when Paul gives them verses 28 through 30, he gives them the promise that is exclusively only for God's people. And he said, all this is yours because he determined you. But before we get to that, we have to go back and see where this came from. So notice in verse 20. 26 and 27. In honor of God and the reading of His Word, let's stand and read the, the text together. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, specifically. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then you get into Romans 28 through 30 to finish it off. But then in verse 31 through 36, which we'll delve into next week, we'll see that no matter what comes against us, we have victory. But the issue today is simply on the prayer. Prayer. Is how Paul is choosing to end this section of his letter. Prayer. Let's pray now. God, there is so much we don't know about prayer because there is so little we don't suffer. And God, I'm not asking to suffer more. But I'm just wondering, Father, is it possible to be a Christian and to not need suffering and to gain the depths of prayer that you've promised to us. I hope so. But God, if it does take suffering to glorify you. If it, if it takes difficulty and hardship to turn the church that bears your name in these western nations. To once again be reanimated by the fire of God. If that's what it's going to take to avoid going back to status quo or to break out of it. God, then so be it. Bring the rain. Because this life is so short and such a segment. God, help us to finish well. And to not be drunk or inebriated upon ease and comfort and temporary sustainments. 
Show us what this means, Lord, and it comes to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Notice he says, likewise, and he talks about hope before this. He talks about the spirit that we have within us. He, he, he's been talking all about suffering and, and how we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and we eagerly wait with perseverance. The Lord's coming back. And I've adjusted my prayer. I, I feel like sometimes I get so, so focused on seeking the Lord in biblical revival that I've only read about that I forget that he could actually come before that. And so what I've adjusted my prayer to this. I'll say, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly. But until you do, would you see fit to revive us once more? So that when you come and fetch us away, we'll finish well, really strong. So he says, likewise. Likewise, I'm connecting this. The Spirit helps in our weaknesses. And notice he says, ours and we here in the text. Paul himself admitting that he too, without a doubt, struggled in this great gift and responsibility of prayer. Now, I can't go without saying that we're reading this today because we have a problem in the American church and in the Western church. And really, my beef is with the entire Western church. I'm not so American-centric that I don't think that we're not part of a bigger cog. But the entire Western hemisphere of churches is failing miserably when it comes to that responsibility that we have in our relative safe and ease of life and resources in perpetuating the sound and true doctrines of God and grace and the gospel of Christ. The problem is a failure of 21st century Western Christians to understand and apply specifically the doctrine of sanctification to personal holiness in their everyday lives. If, if you know Christ, if God saved you, if you've been born again of His Spirit, you are to live a holy, distinct life. Not to gain his favor, but as one who's a recipient of his favor. So much so in such a degree that when people see you, while you may not even have said anything yet, there's something about you that radiates a difference. And that should be our goal and our aspiration. And we're going to fail a lot because we have feet of clay. But we shouldn't say, well, I'm just a sinner. That's how it is. No, every day should be an opportunity to see of glorifying Christ in our life and in the everyday. And if you have struggles, which I do, and you're going through many things, in which case I do, I pray, God, let me not profane your name with a wrong look or a raised eyebrow out of place or a thought that I allow to persist to quench your Holy Spirit. We don't think about this stuff much anymore in American church or Western church. It's all about the show and the gimmicks and how I can be made to feel good. And if my skin gets raised up, then suddenly God was there or you had a bad pizza. And I'm just saying, we have reduced 
being able to discern the very presence of God down to our feelings of flesh rather than the truth of Scripture so that the Holy Spirit is the one who drives home His presence in our life so that it changes us rather than leaves us the same. Because I'll tell you, if all you're in it for it is for a show, And so you can hear a tagline on some guitar solo in the worship service. And that's all you care about. And that's how you gauge if God was there. Then I would say, find your Bible and repent. Get real with who God has called you to be as a change agent. Stop being a spectator and get involved. We don't know how much time we've got left. I read last night about a man by the last name of, of, um, I think it was John Aileen. He was a uh, Puritan. And he was preaching in such a powerful way, and he knew, so in those times, he was a nonconformist, and the government at that time was rounding them all up, arresting them. And he knew his time was coming short where he would be arrested. So you know what he did? He preached twice a day, seven days a week, because he knew that as soon as he was arrested, he wasn't going to be able to preach anymore. And he did that. And they arrested him and put him in prison in the dungeons there for a year. He got right back out, and you know what he did? He preached some more, and they arrested him again. And this time they kept him a little longer, and he got out. You know what he did again? He preached some more. And his health had taken such a deterioration that he died not long after. But his whole goal was to finish well, to, 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 to preach as much as possible to the lost as possible that he could. Do we think that way? So, what happens if we don't think that way? The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. And I, for one, want to vomit when I think about the fact that they have a Queen James Bible now. I'm not kidding. (laughs) And that's not even the worst of it. That's passing in our day when you have celebrity preachers rather than servants of God humbled before the cross in their own humanity saying things like, it's time for the church to unhitch its wagon from the Old Testament. And celebrating alternative lifestyles as permissible and trying to use this book To condone it and saying God blesses it. That's in our day. Sent a text message to JT. Last night I was reading about Francis Schaeffer. And he made a comment. He said this. If God's people turn away in spiritual adultery. It will not be long until the following generations are engaged in physical adultery. For the two things go hand in hand. And what have we seen the church do in the Western nations? They've they've embraced the flesh and still try to be the church. And it's created a a Franken-church. Something other than. Oh, we're weak, all right. But in this context of what Paul is saying to to the to the Christians in Rome. For those who are desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus. 
to those who don't want us to come to that, who want to stand their ground, you'll find yourself being incredibly weak to do so. Holiness is not your vain attempt at trying to be perfect. It's a brokenness of desperation in your heart's greatest desire to reflect Jesus so that maybe God would rain down in a reckoning of grace one last time. And then people will say, now I know what you mean when he's near. And so we want to pray. So who prays when I can't pray? The Spirit prays. But I learned something from Joel Beakey this week, president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and he said this. There is no prayer unless you're praying in the Spirit anyway. What's the alternative? You praying in your strength? So, He helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as well. Have you ever been there? You're not sure what to bear on the situation with words. But the Spirit makes intercession for us. He does it. And He does it with groanings and apparently things that can't be stated. And he also searches the hearts and minds and because he, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Joel, John Reisinger uh, wrote, We cannot afford to come together just to confirm our theological convictions. We do not want to hold fast our theology. We want our theology to hold us fast in real life. He writes, I fear that too often we pass the test in the classroom of theology and then flunk the test in the classroom of life. We say, oh, I believe in the power of prayer. It's the first and greatest thing you can do. And why isn't it the first and greatest thing you do? Why is it that on any given prayer-called church meeting that only 10% show up across the land? I think what's happened to some degree in America, we have, because of our ease and our comfort, we've been allowed to grow extremely smart and well-versed. And i got to tell you, I, I know most of you here, and I know you know the Bible pretty well. I, I'm glad to be a part of a church that knows the Scripture well. But tell me something. Is it enough to just know it? Dan, can you farm from YouTube videos? No. What do you got to do? You got to get in the dirt. You got to feel the heat. You got to feel the dirt. You got to know what the seasons are. You got to know the weather. You got to be present. We have to show up on the scene sometime. And how's the best way that God's church has ever shown up and rocked the ages on their knees? And that's why I think Paul put that here. Yeah, we hold fast our theology, but does it hold us fast? Here's the underlying principle. Because of electing grace, we are assured of the Spirit's help. Now, let that sink in. If you know Christ, if you've been born again, it's never as bad for you as it could be. Because you're never left alone. 
And because He's faithful even when we are not, and because of His electing grace in your life by the very fact that you're His, the promise that all things work together for good is true for you. That means that that praying that needs to be done, thank God, He's going to do it. We are assured of the Spirit's help and we have the certainty of Christ's victory. You see, for the saint of God, it's never as bad as it could be. Yeah, you say, man, you don't know how much I've flubbed it up. I have flubbed up so much. I have fouled it this way and that way and sideways. And I look at your soul and I see the brokenness and I see the disappointment. And I want you to know something, saint. Jesus took that too. And you have his victory. Stop living below your means. And live in his means. Your responsibility, okay, is to respond to his ability. On the one hand, we are held in trust by the Spirit. And on the other, we are guaranteed a victorious outcome. And you can't see it, and you may not understand it. And you may even be mad at God about it. Fine, he knows. Talk to him. Ask the Lord to pray for you. But know this, all things really do work out for our good. Because God said so. Suffering assumes weakness, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is one of the most famous passages we go to when we talk about the Apostle Paul in his life. And he says, man, because he was caught up into the third, into the third heaven. I, I, there's not seven, by the way. So there's, there's the sky and there's space and there's where God is. And he, and, he, and he said, I saw things that were not, not lawful for a human being to see. And man, he said, I was exalted above measure. Or at least if I, should I be exalted to the point where I become no good, I was given a, a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. That doesn't seem very nice. And Lord, let's read what he says. And at lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now look, farmer logic says, that the Lord wants His people to be strong. Right? The only kind of good fence is a strong fence. And therefore, in the Lord's economy, if we are to be strong, what does it pretty much guarantee? What does it say? Weakness, suffering. Therefore, most gladly, Paul writes, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And when I think of rest upon me, I haven't done the Greek on this, I should. 
But I'm picturing it's sort of similar to the same language. When Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon him. The power of Christ resting upon Paul. Therefore, he says, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... That's when I'm strong. And it makes me think, this is all happening live right now, of the American church and churches I've been in. We have so much as churches. We have so much. Just the very price of this facility itself, the very... Christians in other parts of the world couldn't even fathom it. Or just the fact that no, no one's coming after us right now. Do you know that? Not only are they not coming after us, they're not even thinking about coming after us right now. Nobody's coming. Jeff, no one's going to sabotage you on the way home and take you hostage. No one's coming after your little ones for the faith. Now they're coming after you for the for the other things, but someone once wrote that if if the devil's not chasing you down to defeat you, you're no threat. This makes me think a lot. Is it going to take difficulty? Should it take difficulty? Man, I really would like to try out the alternative to that. What would happen if we got so serious and started praying for desperation and burden like we've never prayed before when we see our whole countries melting down around us? Do you guys realize what's happening out there? When's it going to be enough? So that this altar... Is flooded and wet with the tears of the saints. Sometimes in suffering we are too weak to pray. I, it says in verse 28. We know that all things work together. but And that's a promise. But sometimes we're too weak to pray. But it is assured to the saint that. That the promised and indwelling Holy Spirit of God will in our weakness come alongside us. He's called the paraclete. And will help us in this instance in prayer. Oh, and now my favorite word of the week. Soon anti lambanomai. That's just fun to say. But it's really a cool word. Because if you'll notice in verse 26. The Spirit helps in our weakness Helps is the key word. Helps in our weakness. The Spirit helps. That's sunanti lambanomai. And it means to share a task with someone. To help someone in his work. It, it only occurs twice in the New Testament. Here and then back where uh, uh, Mary was complaining to Jesus about Martha not helping. 
Yeah, in 1040, Martha's plea for Mary's help. Here beautifully, Paul pictures the Holy Spirit. Now this is the imagery. Taking hold at our side at the very time of our weakness and before it's too late. And he assists us on to do what we need to do. He does that. There's there's another one, Joel McKeever. Or Joe McKeever, he writes this. It's a compound word made up of 17 letters, sin, or soon, and really it's in Greek, soon, anti lambanomai. And here's what it means. Soon is a prefix for together or with. Anti means in front of or against. And lambanomai is a form of the Greek verb meaning to lift. Okay? So you put them together and you get a wonderful picture of what the Holy Spirit does for the child of God who does not know how to pray as he should. He gets on the, the Holy Spirit gets on the other side, that would be the anti. Okay, remember, anti, in front of or against. And together with, that would be the soon, he gets under the burden and he lifts it. That's what's so beautiful about the Greek New Testament. That's what the promise is when you think you don't have anything left to say. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, a young preacher, What do I need to do to be a better preacher? And Charles Spurgeon replied, preach more. What do you want to do to be a better prayer warrior? Pray more. How many of you can raise your hand and you know what a prompting of God is that you should pray? Do you know what that is? I learned something else this week. Never, ever. Pass it up. And then Joel, Dr. Beakey was writing about, he, he regrets how many prayers he's lost because he said he would get this finished and then do that. Well, there's another word that's not as fun to say. It's kind of hard to say. Prepare into kano, okay? And it means to plead or to intercede. This is where we get this issue of intercession or intercedes for us. To petition someone in authority on behalf of someone else. So the Spirit comes along and He intercedes for us to God. God the Holy Spirit, right? Because of the sealing of God the Son is now taking your petition to God the Father. Often in our struggles we literally cannot or do not know what to pray for. But in these specific times it is not us interceding for others. But rather the Holy Spirit interceding for us. That's why Hebrews 7.25 says therefore he is able because Jesus is our perfect high priest. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. And it really just, I find it incomprehensible to think that anyone could think that they could help Jesus' priesthood out a little. Tom Elliff, remember, if we were going through our book, uh, Passion for Prayer, I know Brother Mike Busby, you remember going through this book, Tom Ellef writes, intercession is by nature the exercise by which an individual positions himself between two parties. One with a need and the other with the answer. 
and seeks to bring the two together. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It is a matter of reaching out to take the hand of the one with the problem and reaching up to take the hand of the one with the provision and being willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary so that they meet. And that right there, that last sentence, is where we at Northridge and any other church desiring biblical revival is the only solution to our problems in this country, not political solutions, is where we're going to have to find ourselves in this situation as intercessors before this altar, lifting our hands to God in desperation, asking Him to break us first, and then taking this spaghetti bowl of dysfunction and saying, look at it! Do something! First, fix us! We're stuck in all this! And it can't last. Change it. Come down. Just bear with me a few minutes. There was another old Puritan. Robert Bruce was a Scottish pastor back in the 1600s. And this man was known for praying. And he got together with a group of ministers and there was a lull in the prayer meeting. And he began to pray and he began to, his hand kind of began to tap the table and he said, come down, oh God, come down, come down, oh God, come down. And I guess God came down because when he, when he prayed that way, they were, they were all on their faces as God came down upon them. But the, the desperation, the, the, the passion was there. When we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit does. Remember that. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. It makes sense, doesn't it? God, of course, knows what He's thinking. And He makes intercession for the the saints according to the will of God. Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite preachers, never forget what he said. The prayers that originate in heaven... Get done on earth. The prayers that originate in heaven get done on earth. When's the last time you asked God to originate your prayer library? Lord, what what shall I pray? I will wait here until you tell me. He knows. Well, lastly, and this is the last slide. God understands what the Spirit desires. This is from Robert Mounts, even though it is inexpressible in human terms. God understands, Robert Mounts writes, what the Spirit desires, even though it is inexpressible in human terms. You don't know what to say. God is the one who has complete access to the heart. His knowledge is direct, not dependent upon one's ability to articulate concerns. God is a searcher of hearts and knows the desires of the Spirit as the Spirit with His will. Or as the Spirit intercedes for us. He knows that the Spirit is interceding for saints in harmony with His will. The Holy Spirit will never pray anything other than the will of God for you and bring it to bear upon the situation. 
So it could be that sometime maybe you're called to an emergency room or a family member who's breaking down or a child who doesn't know what to do and they're sobbing and you can't help them. And you say, let's just pray. It's okay not to say anything. It's okay just simply to say, Holy Spirit of God, it's too great. Take it. And you just rest in the quiet. Because that's the promise. Most of us are too busy and too concerned and want to hear ourselves talk. The Spirit comes to the aid of believers baffled by the perplexity of prayer and takes their concerns to God with an intensity far greater than we could ever imagine. Our groans become His as He intercedes on our behalf. The mind of the Spirit, furthermore, is what the Spirit has set His mind on. Because He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. It's it's what He set His mind on. what, What He purposes to do. I want more. I want more. I want more. I want to see more. I want more so badly. Do you want more? How bad do you want it? Lord, as we enter into a time of just reflection, it it just occurs to me that somehow we think we're waiting on you. I don't think that's right. I think, God, we are so busy looking at everything else that's beeping and buzzing and flashing around us. Lord, we're stuck. We, we don't know suffering like what Paul was talking about. We don't. We have health concerns and that's big. We lose loved ones and we have financial troubles and we have jobs that are on the line and and various and sundry other things. But we don't know what it is to suffer for your name. Lord, could it be? Would you... Would you consider coming down upon us and taking us up and out of what we've known into what we've never known? Would you come near? Would you condescend? Father, for those here who do not know you, I trust your sovereign grace and pray that you would bring them on home. God, in your glorious grace, that they would cry out for mercy and receive you to themselves. And Lord, that you would do such a mighty thing 
that there would be no way to explain it except just God did it. As JT sings, whatever the Lord may direct you to do, I've done what I can.